Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. What was supposed to be a quiet week between the London sales and March's run of art fairs has turned into a very busy one. Sotheby's announced it had bought a portion of RM Auctions, the classic car auctioneers. Hedge fund Mercado launched another broadside against Sotheby's board. And Tactic released a new confidence survey. I'm discussing all this and more with Scott Rayburn of the International New York Times. Scott, you've had a busy week uh, announcing that Gerard Fascinato has joined David Zwerner, uh, and then you wrote a longer piece about the galleries in London that I'd like to talk to you a bit about. But first, tell us about this Fascinato news and what it means. Well, I, I, I think uh, a lot of people in the, the art world who hadn't heard about it through the grapevine were, were pretty shocked. Um, I, I You know, I found it a, a surprise because Gerard Fascinato is... is a pretty major name in the the world of Mayfair galleries, um, and it was quite a moment that he should get up of his gallery and then bolster the sales team of David Zwerner. Um, there are two strands to this. On the one hand, one takes the inference that uh, Faginato found it difficult to 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 make a profit as a, a sort of middle ranking contemporary art dealer in London even though we know about the huge amounts of money, uh, international money in London. And secondly, uh, we see Zwerner, who's one of the great powerhouse galleries in New York, needing to bolster the sales team, which of course implies that uh, being a mega dealer in London is rather difficult and has different challenges from being a mega dealer in New York. And Faginato brings with him the Bacon estate. Is that a significant factor? I'm not sure if, if it is. Uh, obviously, it's a stupendous name in the market, particularly in Europe. Um, you know, Bacon and Richter are the two uh, big money spinners for the auction houses. But I, I don't know how much left there is in terms of five-star material left in the Bacon estate. The, 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 the works that do emerge um, aren't top museum quality. But obviously the connection with the Bacon estate brings with it lots of other opportunities. And if that connection does continue uh, with Zwerner, uh, that in itself is also a very, very useful acquisition. Yes, I would have thought if there's still substantial works in the estate that it would be very valuable. But mm. one would also think that would be so valuable it would uh, allow Faginato to have remained independent. Precisely. Uh, yeah, I think that is the case. And and if there were tremendous works coming out on a regular basis, I think that Faginato uh, would have remained independent. Um, Gerard's problem was that he he just didn't have any hot young artists that that, that drive sales in the market at the moment. Uh, so his his list of um, primary uh, gallery artists wasn't as impressive as some other gallerists, and I think that's that's the central problem. But aren't we told that so you know at least over the last several years we've been told that so much of the real action in the market is in the secondary market. That's where. The money is because mm. you've got these established blue chip uh, works, and you are, uh, you know, buying them, but also just reselling them, and there's no artist to pay uh, in the process. But your your article suggests that though there are 
a, a very large number. I think you said four to six thousand non-denominated, no. non-domiciled, uh, 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 ultra high net worth individuals. That's a mouthful. Um, living in London, or at least with uh, uh, homes of some sort in London, that London is still struggling to find the the flow of of buyers. Yes, I. I, I it's it's a fascinating comparison with New York because when you I spoke to David Zwern, I spoke to a number of dealers, and they talked about the the different culture in New York. There's a, a collegiate culture among um, collectors. There's a competitiveness on a Saturday morning. They go out to the galleries. And, of course, there's a, uh, without making too much about it, you know, Americans tend to be quite open people, uh, open to new ideas, and their collectors want to talk about their collections and so on. You know, London is, 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 has got a lot of very, very wealthy people but uh, a lot of these people want to keep an extremely low profile. Uh, one only has to think about the HSBC black account scandal, and uh, hundreds of those accounts were, were based in the UK and, by extension, London. Um, and there is an international community uh, of non-DOMs in London. They're extremely wealthy, but they don't necessarily want to advertise their wealth or be ostentatious. And so there is a, a, a different a cultural difference there between um, the London and New York collecting culture. Essentially, as, as one dealer points out, you have a collecting culture in, in, in New York, but in London you have people who buy art. And that's, that's an important cultural distinction, I think. I thought that was, in many ways, the most important quote from your whole piece, the idea that in London you have buyers and in New York you have a community of collectors. And mm -hmm. and I wonder, you know, since so much of it comes down to what you're describing is a distinction between community where people are interacting, competing, mm -hmm. uh, feel like they're engaged in a mutual project. Yeah. But in, in London you have a large population, but they're not a community. They're from countries all over the world. They speak many different languages. They're from different faiths. They they really have nothing to do with each other except that they live nearby and yes. happen to have um, an interest in this uh, art. Is yeah. there a chance that since this is all new that they will begin to become a community, that really what's just waiting to happen in London is, is people to gel through their art? Um. I'm skeptical of that. I think it's. I think the the lack of a collecting culture in London is a reflection of the culture of London itself. London is such a huge city. It's so international. Um, it lacks that sense of community that you have. I think in in cities like Manhattan or even even Paris. Um, for for that culture, that collegiate collecting culture to to grow uh the culture of london has to change um one of the, the the classic things about london is that why international people like it so much is that they always say that they're just left alone to get on with their lives um whereas in in new york there's this tremendous sense you're a new york you become a new yorker um people don't talk in london i'm a londoner but it's very rarely that people say oh i'm a london i'm a Londoner, but People in Paris, people in New York, they have this tremendous sense of being part of a city and that's culture. So that that is a, 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 going to be a problem for the art market in London because there isn't that sense of 
uh, community and that collegiate quality that goes with living in, in, in London as a city itself. I'm, I'm just here for the property rights is the, the problem. <laughs> Precisely, exactly. And a lot of people are. And, um, you know, it's a different subject. But one of the fascinating aspects of London is that all this money has been invested in real estate. But if you're in the centre of town, uh, these, these apartments are just dark. Um, these people aren't in town. It's very difficult to have a, co a collegiate atmosphere among the collecting community if these people are only in London for 20 days a year. Yes, it's it's like downtown Vancouver with these dark towers. Uh, so that's an oddly not terribly optimistic uh, uh, point of view about London, uh, even as the art market, uh, it, you know, on the auction side stays strong, that the, the, the belief that this would become a global center of the art world uh, beyond just uh, those sales maybe isn't isn't the case. And, and I was interested that um, Art Tactic also just released a survey that isn't um, as buoyant as it has been. And, and just to refresh, the, the Art Tactic survey polls about, I think, 250 dealers and collectors about their where they think uh, the, the market is going. Yes, I, I, it's, um, I, I think the factor that is preying a lot of people's mind is, is, the, is the, the macroeconomic situation with Greece, the effect on the euro, and also the political situation. You know, uh, we have three very nasty civil wars going on at this moment um, in Middle East and uh, in Ukraine, uh, and the combination of uh, a lack of economic stability and, and, and political instability um, is preying on the minds of people. And so I, I sense, uh, and this was reflected in the Art Tactic um, Confidence Report, a sense of re slight retrenchment, conservatism, um, a, a, a reluctance to take risks in terms of buying art. And that was already reflected in the auctions, I think, in, in February in London, the, the frothier side of the contemporary market, the, the, the younger artists who've been very hot in 2014, the so-called flip artists and so on. Um, it was interesting to see how the prices, it wasn't a disaster, they were still selling, but the, the froth had been skimmed off their prices. People like Oscar Murillo was a good example. Um, and there was a retrenchment to museum-proven names from the 20th century uh, and those those names were selling extremely strongly, but there was a, an air of, of, of a slight air of retrenchment and conservatism in the buying. I thought the froth may have come off the the market, but I I think that I read that Anders was suggesting that you know it's still uh, a masterpiece market. It's still skewed towards the high end, and I thought we'd seen last week uh, in London hints of the other side, or even you're just talking about Murillo, you know, those are not um, million dollar paintings. And there seems to be lots of interest in that level uh, of the market. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's, just, it's just the, the, the uh, price uh, calibration changed, I think. Um, you know, people looked at, for example, Phillips's sale or the, the younger artists at Sotheby's and Christie's and thought, well, they're, they're going to be high, they're going to fail. They didn't. They just found a different level. Uh, and it was just a recalibration. And yet, on the other hand, if we're talking about um, slightly lower levels in the art, 
art market, and of course that is a, um, a very, very relative term. Uh, I was fascinated in the results from the works on paper, uh, sales from um, the Impression Modern um, auctions the previous week, very high selling rates, and things like Kirchfitter's collages, that, you know, they're wonderful things, but they were getting up towards, uh, what, £380,000 now? Quite remarkable. Um, so I think people are looking at what, in general terms, could be viewed as, as more affordable areas, and there's still plenty of life there. Because, of course, the, the, the masterpieces, the, the, the works that everyone wants, are getting so expensive now. But Schwitters is not exactly a name you would think of as an, a, an asset artist. Absolutely. Uh, so so it, it really does either su- suggest that these art historically valid uh, and established uh, artists are seeing more investment money or we're seeing people who truly are driven as collectors uh, in fields that aren't necessarily uh, of the moment or terribly popular. No, that's right. And I, 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 you know, I've been speaking to advisors and um, at least one of them said, well, it's interesting at the moment, I have at least two or three people who are looking back over their shoulders at 20th century art, early at modernism. Uh, they're concerned about the very uh, rapid increase in prices in, in uh, contemporary art and looking for value further back in the century. And also, it was fascinating to see David Zwerner talking about, I want to increase my, my secondary market dealing, but we're looking at impressions and modern. And um, if you go, for example, at Art Basel last year, or a number of other contemporary, FIAC's another good example, um, over the last five years, the uh, classic modernist section, or the number of dealers dealing that, has contracted and contracted. And uh, I actually expect that to be um, an area that goes through a little bit of a, a revival this year. I think people are looking back at classic modernism, uh, seeing its, re- uh, once again, recognizing its rarity value and also its, its, its sheer quality. Here in New York, we're about to see the Armory Show open in a couple of weeks. Mm. And the last um, two or three years, the modern uh, peer has been in many ways the highlight of the show, and certainly the uh, the art show, the ADAA's uh, you know companion show in Midtown, which skews much more towards modern works, has also been a, a, a beacon that way. And it does feel, uh, even with Freeze, that you know Freeze Masters was as exciting in the last uh, year as the uh, contemporary you know primary works uh, were, maybe more exciting. No, absolutely. I, and, and another strand to this, I gather Art Cologne uh, this year is going to expand its classic modern section. Uh, I think that that's one of the few fairs that certainly in Europe that realise that there's potentially an opportunity there. So I, I, I think it'll, it'll it, the fact that the, the market now in a sense is, is broadening out into a 20th century market is, is going to be particularly interesting. So that the, the traditional uh, um, uh, duality between ints, mods, and, con- and post-war contemporary, I think that, that may well blur a bit, and more and more people are going to uh, buy across those two fields, which, which, which will make this market interesting. Well, it certainly seems like there's a lot of excitement in these rediscovered artists from the 20th century, yeah. you know, uh, or or newly popularized uh, uh, ones. Uh, and, and it seems like every uh, uh, 
three to six months, we find a new one who gains traction. Uh, the Gutai Shiraga, uh, uh, you know, trend is only the latest one, uh, but there's certainly more on the horizon. Uh, I think we've discussed in the past, if not, you know, there's there's a, a growing interest in uh, Simone Hantai, who had a, a, a retrospective at the Pompidou and seems to pop up a lot more. Uh, and and it, it it's almost as if these uh, less celebrated 20th century artists are becoming the the new you know young um, zombie formalists. No, absolutely, and I, I think that's uh, another aspect into this. Uh, this is that it also perhaps reflects that um, at the moment, in terms of young contemporary artists, it's possibly not the most exciting period we've had for the last twenty years. Um, that also might be a, a reason why people are looking backwards and and and, and rediscovering um, people in the classic modern period. Well, and just to tie up the architectic survey discussion, and that might be some sense of the um, ennui, you know, the not that there's going to be a crash coming, but certainly that there's nothing terribly exciting in the market if you're thinking in terms of the the contemporary, the primary market, where the excitement may be moving towards rediscovering, uh, you know, artists and periods from the past. Yes, absolutely. And I, I you know, last year, uh, was was all about process, so-called process-based abstract painting, uh, and this year when we kicked off the auctions, um, all the excitement was about Jonas Wood, who's a basically a very very clever um, figurative painter. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of art is deemed to be hot this year. Um, if it's the sort of painting that 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 Jonas Wood represents, that will be a pretty interesting development yes well there's there's artists like alex katz who yes. keep uh uh sort of hanging on the the precipice about to break uh you know and he combines both figurative and and a form of pop art uh in a way that one would think uh, uh would would explode into this kind of environment absolutely yeah 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 that's that that's a really analogous kind of art yes i agree so it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. So there was a, a, a lot of news around Sotheby's this week, and I wondered uh, if uh, you had any particular uh, questions, opinions uh, about it. I, I thought it was fascinating the way we had a sort of drum beat of different things that came out. In some ways, the most significant one was the announcement that RM Auctions, the very sort of high-end um, classic car uh, auctioneers, had sold a 25% stake to Sotheby's, which is the culmination of, I think, two or three years of the companies working together, running sales together. So it's not a surprise that they, uh, given the, the strength of the classic car market, that they did some sort of a deal. What's interesting is how cautious the deal is. I suppose that's probably a question about the price and not being able to agree on the on the price. But it certainly is the kind of move that everyone's been demanding from Sotheby's for the last 18 months in the midst of this proxy fight. And yet, as soon as it comes, we see the um, one of the main uh, uh, activist investors uh, announce that he's you know very upset with the board still and wants them to continue with their stock buyback program. 
he seems to have been insulted by a comment released in the court papers uh, that the CFO made, I think, about him. So he's demanding that the CFO uh, be fired. And he uh, generally is uh, breaking ranks in what we thought was a, a fairly unified group uh, uh, of investors. So it makes it a very interesting uh, welter of um, reactions just as uh, they're gearing up for the next uh, set of sales. Yeah, so the, 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 the timing of um, Mercato's intervention struck me as... as as being reflecting the fact that Mercato aren't perhaps fully aware of the importance of this moment in the art market cycle. Um, in May, Sotheby's have an absolutely crucial series of sales in New York, which will define its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis its competitiveness against um, Christie's. Now, at this moment, of course, you have the specialists. They're going out there. They're trying to get... Um, museum quality contemporary works and to get these works um, they have to offer deals um, either guarantees or um, what's known as enhanced hammer which is where the, the auction house gives the seller um, a substantial percentage of its own profits of its own upside from the buyer's premium um, now, here we have Mercato asking for, was it $500 million back just at the moment when Sotheby's is trying to get together its sale and is in negotiation with consigners. And that, and that you know, on a very simple level, doesn't seem to be very clever timing, does it? Well, I think the timing is in reaction to the announcement last Friday that the buyback program was going to be put on hold until a new CEO was uh, appointed on the uh, thinking that the CEO ought to be able to use that capital as he sees fit rather than inheriting uh, a choice to have returned it, uh, to return the capital um, before uh, he or she uh, is installed, which makes uh, some sense. But you have to remember the the backstory. Mercado is the original activist investor. Uh, Dan Loeb piggybacked on Mercado, and Mercado ha is a is a fairly cold blooded um, hedge fund. They're not interested in Sotheby's uh, potential future. They're interested in the cash and real estate on uh, Sotheby's uh, balance sheet. They want it. That's why they bought in. The mm. big surprise with Mercado was why they hadn't actually sold out um, when the stock hit 55 and they'd made a substantial uh, profit. So they clearly were sticking around for either the new vision that Loeb uh, uh, you know, promoted or for this uh, special dividend that was part of the negotiation uh, with Loeb. But if they want the stock price to get back to what it was a year ago, um, surely the thing to do is to allow Sotheby's to produce as good a possible sale as they can in May. If they can close the gap with Christie's, that will surely have positive repercussions on their, their share price, won't it? 
Yes, but I think that's probably a longer-term point of view than what Mercado uh, is thinking yeah. about. I mean, you know, Mercado got in because they did a calculation that the value of the building and the cash on the co- company's balance sheet and some of the other cash and the way it was uh, used could be uh, used for a stock buyback or a special dividend, and that would be a one-time payment to shareholders, and that would be their benefit, uh, their their profit, and they would move on. They got involved in this larger strategic battle, which put Loeb in on the board. And it's almost if it, as if Loeb has gone off the reservation, forgotten why they they started all of this, and is now pursuing a different strategy from what um, uh, Mick McGuire and Mercado wanted to see. And stopping that dividend was, in some sense, a betrayal. And so uh, Mercado is is firing a shot across their bow that he's not he's not going to stand for this. And and it's interesting, you know, the real. Divergence is the RM investment versus the the special dividend, because mm. the you know the classic car market is becoming very big, mm. and uh, RM is doing you know substantial sales. They're selling Ferraris in the fifteen, twenty, thirty million dollar uh, sure. range. Sure. That's that's just as you know uh, good as uh, the contemporary art market. Yeah. Uh, and and I it, it's whether it's conscious or not it it's almost as if Mercado is saying that doesn't interest us we just want this money uh, returned so we can move on the the one thing I will say I think this is more perception than reality the, the Sotheby's raised its um, credit facility to like six hundred million dollars to do guarantees mm-hmm. so even if the cash is returned the dividend is is paid or the stock is bought, bought back that doesn't hamper Sotheby's ability to make these okay. guarantees but it does throw the perception you know it as people said last year when the board fight was going on it was very hard for Sotheby's to make deals just because there was a cloud over who well who's going to be in charge when uh, this auction is finally held and I think that so it's more of a PR problem than it is an actual uh, uh, financing problem well it's the other question that perhaps needs to be asked is, you know, how long can Sotheby's carry on like this without appointing a, a new CEO? Uh, how damaging is it for Sotheby's to to be perceived as as drifting? I know it's difficult. It's a difficult process to find the right person. It's an incredibly difficult job. Um, but I just wonder how long Sotheby's can carry on without appointing someone formally. Uh, because after all, Christie's has, as UC Bulkanen has essentially taken over as as, as, as chairman, at the head, the operational head of Christie's. The moment we still have uh, Bill Ruprecht nominally in charge, although he said he's, he, he he was standing down. Uh, how much longer can this situation carry on before it actually becomes quite damaging to Sotheby's? I find that quite interesting. No, I, th- I think especially when they're in those very competitive. Uh, positions, it has to make it harder. Though, if the market is moving the way we've just been discussing, away from the $70, million work of art and towards uh, a, almost a middle market, still very expensive works in the many millions of do- dollars, and mm-hmm. adding things like classic cars, suddenly Sotheby's has... Um, Parity. I mean, certainly the London sales they did as well or better than uh, Christie's in in both categories. And if you add 
the classic car market, which they now have mm. a, a, a big foothold in, and Christie's does not. Uh, uh, Sotheby's, even without a, a new face to lead the charge, does have some direction and momentum. Absolutely. And, and even though it, it, it doesn't have a, 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 a figurehead that's been appointed, it's interesting that, that it was able to become much more uh, proactive and aggressive in terms of guarantees and um, uh, enhanced uh, hammer deals for the impressions in modern and contemporary sales in London. Uh, you know, the previous year in, in, in February in the contemporary sales, um, Christie's, I think if you remember, took something like £40 million more. Uh, this time, um, Sotheby's took marginally more money than, than, than Christie's. That's a significant turnaround. And, you know, people I spoke to, there, there was general talk about Sotheby's being much, much more proactive, putting money on the table, getting the, the, the really five-star consignments in. So although there's uh, normally a lack of a leadership there, clearly at a departmental level, there's plenty of drive and direction there, which was interesting to see being played out in the, in the auctions and, and turning around Sotheby's competitive position. Well, speaking of competitive positions do you think that um bonhams which was has been for sale for some time and and doesn't seem to have found a buyer but its main um point of strength is its car its classic car sales do you think bonhams will uh uh, be sold to christie's it seems very unlikely to me but uh, you know uh, it would be the logical place to turn well if 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 Christie's wants a classic car department, um, Bonhams would be a good fit. Uh, it is worth pointing out, of course, that Bonhams has a high profile in Europe as a, a classic car auctioneer. But of course, in, in North America, uh, Bonhams is really way, way behind uh, Goodings and RM when you look at the, the amounts of money taken overall. And now I know Bonhams um, last year had that the Ferrari GTO, uh, which did make a big difference, and that, that was a bit of a moment. Um, but in terms of its its profile as a classic car auctioneer in the in the US, it's not quite as big as Goodings and, and RM. And um, Sotheby's increase of stake with RM stake with RM struck me as a, a very canny acquisition indeed. And I, 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 it'll be fascinating to see with whether Christie's follows suit. Bonhams would make would make uh, a logical acquisition, but isn't it fascinating that that you know there was Bonhams. Bonhams, in relative terms, is a pretty profitable auction house um, because, of course, it it, it does um, concentrate on that sweet spot of lots between rather say ten thousand dollars to you know, three hundred thousand dollars, where where you're taking quite a bit of money from both of the buyer and the seller. But Bonhams just couldn't find a buyer. Um, you know, uh, poly auctions. There wasn't a Chinese uh, buyer for the for the company, and I just think it was just a, a clear indication of how difficult it is to make money out of uh, out of auctioning things, uh, particularly auctioning art. Yes, uh, it's it seems like a, a major commitment to buy a, a fairly large company. It certainly doesn't make sense for Christie's to absorb all of Bonham's uh, just to get the car business. Uh, no, uh, absolutely. And, uh, um, 
And it's not like it's been a secret that Sotheby's and RM have been drifting closer together. If you wanted to make that move strategically, you would have done it uh, anytime in, you know, in the last six or eight months that Bonhams has been uh, for sale. Absolutely. It's, you know, if you drill into the, the classic car market, though, it's, it's, it might be difficult to see how it can expand in any kind of exponential way in which you've seen which we've seen with with uh, contemporary art if you look at the the figures for the um the classic car market it's it's they're all it's driven by 1960s ferraris and there aren't that many of them uh i know they're making a lot of money but um the top end of the classic car market it's just ferrari 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 from the 1960s well um, it's it's like the watch market which is all yeah. rolex and patek philippe <laughs> you know it's 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 ferraris and then a few other cars that come across i mean uh, look I, I agree with you but then again look at almost everything having to do with the art market where everyone said it couldn't possibly get bigger than this and then did i mean yeah. the the ability of these markets to um, valorize new objects is their strength. No, absolutely. And if, if for example, if Sotheby's, if another GTO came out, the, 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 you perhaps know that the problem with Bonham's G, GTO was it was a death car. Uh, someone was killed in the car. And that is the, essentially the reason why it didn't make $50 million. Um, it had crashed, it had been restored, but someone had been killed in it. And, and for some um, car buyers, uh, Perfectly understandably, that, that is a bit of a problem. I was just going to say, I can't problem. imagine why it bothers them. <laughs> <laughs> but if um, so far the, 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 the deals, and I, I sort of report on quite a few of them, the, the deals with Ferrari GTOs have generally all been private deals and they're hovering around the $50 million um, mark. Uh, if Sotheby's could sell a publicly at auction a, a, a really good GTO with a good race history which someone hasn't been killed in that could be an amazing transformative moment in in the auction market I think because if you look at the, the power of Sotheby's client list um, something really amazing could happen you know seven, 70 million for a Ferrari GTO because at the moment that market is is hermetically sealed uh, within car fanatics but with Sotheby's um, client list, they could bring in two or three new people, very wealthy people, and, and something incredible could happen, I think. Well, that's that's what's amazing about the market is it's the mm. those big sales really catch the people who are not the fanatics uh, yeah. and make them sit up and notice. And the fact that there is a structure around it to say, yes, there are plenty of other people who would pay this amount of money for a car mm. as odd as that may sound to you, it increases your confidence in, in wanting to do it because you know that, that it's not just a one-off purchase where you're burning your money, that you can, if you uh, uh, need to or want to, sell this thing again. And, and it's that um, marketing that is the power of these public auctions. And that seems to be what's happening in the, the car market at, at many levels. I mean, I, I agree with you, the, the top end market is driven all by Ferraris. But it does seem to be bringing in more and more both car marks 
and different types of cars. I mean, uh, uh, RM held a sale in Scottsdale uh, recently. It was one of uh, you know six or seven different companies running uh, car sales, and they were selling everything from American muscle cars and you know uh, '30s Duesenbergs to Ferraris. So there there is a big market out there for. Um, cars of all types. It's just whether is is that you know a market that someone like Sotheby's uh, can benefit from. Well, I, I, I you know, these these are important points. Um, you're absolutely right. But, but one of the areas to watch in the car market is is the increase in price of um, 1980 sports cars, um, because of course you're getting these generational shifts, and it's. We're getting to a point where the new buyers entering the classic car market, um, heaven forfend, don't think a Ferrari GTO is the most beautiful car that's ever been made. Um, so that gives potential to the market. I think there's another strand to it, of course, is that Sotheby's acquisition of RM is part also of um, the transformation of, of the fine art auctioneering business into a luxury auctioneering business, uh, just as we saw with with. Uh, Christie's under Stephen Murphy, we saw the online sales of handbags and, and watches and so on. Um, at a higher level, Sotheby's coming into uh, the, um, the classic car market is another aspect of the luxurification of the auction market. I think. You know, that's a that's a very interesting and important point because it also fits with uh, a strategic issue that was much talked about two or three years ago, but has become somewhat dormant. And, and that's the idea that Christie's was going and staying in the lower end of the market and Sotheby's was only going to concentrate on the high end of the market. That somewhat got overwhelmed by Christie's sudden explosion in contemporary, which was the very top end of the market. But in the much broader sense, Sotheby's was meant to to focus only on the higher value works. And if what you're saying is true, and I think it is true, true adding things like luxury cars, adding they, they, they've got this 100-carat um, flawless diamond that they're selling, you know, uh, uh, pushing into the very top end of it uh, makes sense for them, whereas Christie's has much more to benefit from trying to become a luxury retailer across the board because they're owned by a major luxury uh, retail but, conglomerate. But I, I, I always felt um, personally that that, um, that actually that gave Christie's an edge. Uh, I think there's a huge difference between trying to sell a £2,000 um, Old Master oil painting and a £2,000 handbag. Um, it struck me that selling £2,000 handbags on online at Christie's uh, was a rather brilliant move, actually, because the person who buys a £2,000 handbag uh, might well be living in a house uh, with someone who can afford a hundred million pound painting, and um, it's always difficult to quantify these things. But but um, Christie's always maintained that they gained a lot of new customers through those online sales of luxury goods, which I I, I think may well have been the case. It probably cost them a fortune to do those sales. We haven't got the figures on how much it costs to do those online sales, but it's certainly built their client list. Um, whereas selling £2,000 old masters really doesn't do that much for your corporate growth, I don't think. 
Well, speaking of corporate profiles and this competition with the online sales, your newspaper ran an interview with uh, Ed Dolman, who is now the CEO of Phillips, but was previously the CEO of Christie's. Uh, and in that, he makes the the vague suggestion that the, the online sales at Christie's uh, were part of the problem that may have uh, uh, caused Stephen Murphy to, to leave the company. I gather it's pretty expensive to run those online sales. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what the figures are, but I, I what the, the, the word is that uh, that was a factor in Stephen Murphy's departure. It was the expense of running those online sales. And if you look at the actual numbers, what is it? They represented, what, less than 2% of their overall sales. It's a, a tiny fraction. And if you just interested in number crunching, the amount of money that was spent on, on uh, reducing those online sales didn't seem to, to give enough back in terms of pure financial gain. Um, I do think in, in defense of that strategy, I think they gained a lot of customers and um, who would have bought in other areas. Um, but do you think that means they're pulling back from that strategy? Is that we'll, we'll see what happens because um, clearly that we don't know the detail, do we? But 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 clearly there was a sense that a lot of money was being spent on on in various strands of its 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 expansion and business getting. Um, another example, I, I I don't know whether you heard about this, but the, with, with Christie's. Um, uh, recent sale in India, trying to expand in India with that 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 um, sale of 20th century and 21st century Indian art. I actually I spoke to an Indian journalist of my friend of mine. He was he was incredibly shocked by the, the extravagance of, of the marketing, the amount of money that was thrown at that event, and um, I think what we've seen at Christie's the departure of, of Stephen Murphy. Uh, although we can't quantify it in detail, um, seems to be a reaction against Christie's in its broader sense, buying market share. And when one looks at the figures of, of Sotheby's, you know, you can you can slice them in as many ways as you want. But fundamentally, Sotheby's recently have been working off a sort of prop, a basic profit margin of 2% on their sales. Now, Sotheby's have been perceived as um, the more cautious, certainly up until now, the more cautious business getter, uh, which is why I found it quite surprising when in the, the New York Times interview, when uh, Ed Dolman was asked, "Is are these auction houses making a profit? And he said, yes, of course they are. Well, I didn't think he used the phrase, of course they are, but he said, yes, they're making a profit. Um, and if Sotheby's, who are certainly up until recently were, were really cautious and restrained in terms of their business getting were, were really working only on two percent one wonders what was the case at christie's yes i mean he said of course they are but not you know nearly enough to justify the investment of capital which uh you know sotheby's is the one most vulnerable to that being publicly owned and uh being asking for people's capital uh, in the public markets mm, mm. yes absolutely and it, you know if you, if you just look at the you uh, alluded to it earlier if you just look at sotheby's the performance of its share price over the last year 
um, what this time last year was up at what 50, 51, 50, 61, uh, and now it's up at what 44, 59, uh, and this is in the, the middle of a, a bull run in equities. It's it it, it is a reflection of how what a difficult business it is to make money. Yes, uh, and and a difficult business to to convince uh, people to put capital into, or I yeah. think even more, more so. You can make money and probably do nicely as a private business um, and do it to pursue possibly other ends. Uh, but but as a, a public company competing against, uh, you know, all sorts of Internet companies um, you know, that grow at uh, incredible rates and others that, that throw off a, a lot of cash. It's hard to uh, imagine these being the sort of most favored stocks that way. Yes, yeah, so, uh, but on the other hand, if you look at the the internet auctioneers, there's, there's an enormous amount of money being thrown at them at the moment, isn't it? But we'll see how that, that how that pans out as well. Well, that's going to have to be the subject for that's another for discussion. <laughs> All right, Scott, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Our Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 